Good morning, church. We continue our series that we began last week, Declaration of Dependence. We live in a culture that is set on independence, and it's a great value that we are grateful for the freedom that we have in Christ, the freedom we have to worship this morning. But uh, we realize also that what we need most are people that we can live life with. We're dependent on God. We're dependent on one another. And so this is a conversation about the isolation that we need to step out of so that we can step in to the full life, the wholehearted life that God has for us. Let's begin with prayer as we open uh, this morning in God's Word. Oh God, we, uh, we do uh, thank you so much for the resurrection of Jesus. That you have arisen, you promised to come again in Jesus to restore all things to the way you intend. God, right now we feel an unease. We feel a sense that things are not as they should be from tornadoes that bring destruction to sickness and to challenge, God. And, and, and this morning, God, a lot of us are in a place of loneliness, a place of isolation. We don't feel like we're connected as we should be. And that's a dangerous place to be, God. And that's why you call us into relationship and into community is because there's a protection there, God. There's a sense of, of safety, of solid ground through people that we're drawn to that are, are followers of yours. So, God, I pray this morning you would affirm again that importance in our lives. I pray this morning you'd pray, you would pour through me the gift of preaching as well so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a quote that I came across recently. I can't actually track down the source of who this was. It's been used so many different times, but it's changed my perspective over the last few months. And that quote's this, Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Or as my wife likes to remind me, Everybody's doing their best, Colin. And I got to tell you, I don't always believe that. I do not always give people the benefit of the doubt. And I often don't see the battles that are going on behind the, the short interactions, the traffic, you know, frustrations that are there. It's hard to see the battles in other people's lives, but we're all facing them. And it leads us to empathy when that's the place we live our lives from, a reality that all of us are, are facing challenges. But this morning, I want to share with you a different quote that really is the launch of this message this morning. That's an important sermon for another day, that quote. But but here's my quote this morning off of that. Many of us are fighting battles that we know nothing about. I want to talk this morning about the battle that goes on that is unseen, about the spiritual warfare that's involved in our lives that leads us into places of isolation, of desolation, uh, of loneliness. And spiritual warfare that's uh, going on all around us all the time, but we don't see it, and so sometimes we act as if it doesn't exist. There's a spiritual battle in all of our lives. There's forces of good and there are forces of evil. Peter talks about this in, in a book that he writes later in his ministry. It's in the book of First Peter. If you have your Bibles or your phones, feel free to open there with me or turn to it. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Talk specifically about this battle that we, we need to be aware of in our lives. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, the original uh, language that this was written in in the Greek, it's an even more forceful statement. It's an imperative command, two on top of each other. Be sober, Peter says. Keep a watch out, because the evil one, the enemy, is on the prowl. It's like a roaring lion seeking for those 
that he can devour. This image of a roaring lion that's on the hunt, we, we don't see that in our lives, except maybe on a, you know, a documentary someplace on, on one of those upper cable channels we have, right? And, but sometimes you, you may have seen this or seen one of those, those you know, shows about lions, and, and you think about being on the savanna. Most animals on the savanna are faster than lions are. They're not actually that fast of animals. Their, their genius comes in their ability to hide and in their ability uh, to actually pick out those who are isolated from the herd. So whether it's an antelope or it's a gazelle, whatever it is, a zebra that they're after, they're not going to go after on the attack as they're running past. They're going to hide. They're going to wait, whether it's evening or early morning. They'll take the chance whenever they can. But, but their genius comes in that moment where they're able to hide and they're able to find someone who's separated, who's isolated from the rest of the herd. And it's in those moments that that, that prey is actually uh, most desperate and most in danger. And when I think about that analogy that Peter's using, I think Peter picks that analogy on purpose because what he's trying to say is true about our lives as well. When we are isolated, when we are left out of community, when we are lonely, those are the moments that Satan, that roaring lion, attacks most in our lives. Isn't that true? When we're connected to others, when we're in relationship, when we're in community, it's almost as if there's nothing that Satan can do to attack, to take us away. But in those moments of isolation, this is what we see at the beginning of the Bible, right? Adam and Eve, and, and Eve seems to have this lonely, isolated moment with this serpent, right? And in that moment, uh, she falls to that temptation. And in the life of Jesus, when does Satan find that opportune time? First, it happens in the garden. After 40 days of isolation, 40 days uh, of of, of being alone in the wilderness. Finally, Satan takes that moment to attack. And, and the good news is the devil doesn't win in that story, right? But he says, I'll find an opportune time. And later on, we see that in these quiet, isolated moments of the times where the devil even tries to take Jesus out. So if we're in a battle and our enemy attacks in isolation, it's vital for us to understand a proper defense against those spiritual battles in our lives. And Peter gives us a hint at what we're supposed to do in the verse that follows that passage about the roaring lion. This is verse 9. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So Peter says a couple of things. First, you know, he says, resist him. In the kingdom of God, resistance is not futile. Resistance is a part of what it means to be in the battle. So it's important to be a people who are always on the lookout that are resisting uh, the draw of the evil one. But, but he goes beyond that. He says, stand firm. And then he says how to stand firm. How does he say to stand firm as it follows? He says, be aware that the church worldwide, look around you. There are others that are in this same battle. So the way he tries to challenge these believers is to say, resist. Be on the lookout. But when you face that tri- trial, stand firm, look around you, and realize you're not alone. There are others that are fighting the same battle that are there to walk beside you. Everyone's fighting a battle. Not all of us know about it. And the greatest defense against the destruction that the enemy wants to bring into our lives is to step out of isolation and to step into community. And so if you think back on those moments in your life where you've been most tempted, my guess would be that it's been those moments where you've kind of been separated from the herd in some way. It's been isolation that's been that place that you've been most open to. And it's a dangerous place to be. In a couple Sundays, we're going to celebrate our seniors uh, in high school on Senior Sunday. And uh, we're going to tell stories about the dependence that they've had in our community on people that have grown up their faith. 
But I want to say a word to those who are seniors or those who are going to be entering into college because this is one of those transition moments where the evil one seems to be able to take prey more often than others. The stats are unbelievable. The ways that when people graduate from high school, often they don't just graduate from high school, they graduate from the church. And we're seeing this big distance and, and differentiation that happens. And what happens is it's a moment of isolation. Because for many teens, they've grown up in a youth group, they've grown up in a church that have supported them. But they come to this point where they have to make a decision on their own now. And they don't have the community they've been able to depend on. And it's this opportune moment where, yeah, it seems like an opportunity for sleep, but the evil one doesn't sleep in our lives, does he? And so he sees as an opportunity in the midst of that isolation, that loneliness of not being connected to a new community to, to launch attacks in that moment. So if you find yourself in that season where you're about to move into a new phase, I want to encourage you, find that community of faith where you move to. That ought to be the first step you make. It's going to be easy to, to not make that decision because that's not uh, it's something your parents have decided for you. You haven't had to make that decision yourself. But I think all of us can say that there are moments in our lives and isolation becomes that opportune moment that the evil one can attack. But again, the answer isn't just any kind of community. It's a certain kind of community. And in the book of Proverbs, it actually has this, this proverbial wisdom about this. It says this in Proverbs eighteen twenty four: One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The only thing that's worse than isolation is to be a part of a community of people who are unreliable, who are not committed to the kingdom of Christ. That's actually worse than isolation because now you've got a group mentality that's led in the wrong direction. And some of us have been caught up in that, and that's been our move away from the kingdom of God and move away from, from being Christ-like, right? That's been where the temptations come. But so it's either isolation, but it's, it's even worse to find a community that's separated from Christ. Find those where you are who are connected to Christ. Make a commitment to walk together with them because a friend close, sticks closer than a brother. Find a community that's going to point you to Jesus. That's the greatest defense you can have in the battle that comes with faith. And this whole principle was true in the life of one of the most popular characters in all of Scripture. It's a guy named King David. King David, you can almost chart his ups and downs in his life spiritually with the community that he surrounds himself with. In fact, early in his ministry, he gets called to be a part of the king's household, King Saul, who's the first king of Israel. And the interesting thing is along the way, David gets anointed as the next king. This has got to be an isolating moment for him because he's moved away from his family and now he's in the king's household and, and, and the king's angry a lot of the time. I mean, imagine what that would have been like to be isolated from all the people you've known and now you're here. But what he finds is one of the strangest friendships you can ever imagine. It's the son of King Saul, a guy named Jonathan, that becomes best friends with David. It's the most unlikely relationship there could be because Jonathan's supposed to be the next king. He's in line behind Saul, but David's been anointed. There's going to be a mix-up in the years to come. And these two guys become best friends. I want to to just show you how Scripture describes their relationship. It's an incredible relationship. This is in the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'm going to spend some time in 1 and 2 Samuel, so I'd love for you to turn there with me if you would. 1 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 1. It says there, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic, and even his sword, his bow, 
and his bells. And we have plenty of examples in Scripture of bad relationships. But this is probably the best example of spiritual friendship that uh, you can find in Scripture. In fact, it says that Jonathan made a covenant with David. This is a spiritual relationship with a spiritual commitment. I'm curious in the room, how, how many of us have ever made a covenant with a friend? That's kind of strange language in our day, isn't it? Because we tend to just kind of hang out with people and hopefully the, the relationship will emerge. But when it comes to marriage, we know that there has to be a, a conversation that leads us to a commitment with one another, right? I mean, very few people like wake up the next morning and wind up married unless they're in Vegas or something like that, right? At some point, you have to have a conversation. When you're moving from that stage of being single to being linked up with someone, you have to have a conversation. Someone's got to take that risk to say, would you want this to maybe be a boyfriend-girlfriend thing? That's, that's a vulnerable moment, isn't it? it? It's a risky moment to put forward and say, I, I really want more out of this relationship. I want to take this to the next step. The same thing's true when it comes to marriage, right? Somebody has to pop that question. Somebody has to, to ask, would you be willing to do this for the rest of our lives? And that's one of the most vulnerable moments I can ever remember in my life was laying that out. Even though I, I, I had a pretty good idea that Holly was going to say yes, there's still that sense of, man, is she going to walk with me through this? And, and I think about that, and I, then I think about our friendships, and I realize there is no point in our lives with friends where you're forced to have a conversation like you are with the person you're married to. So a lot of us live our friendships never really knowing where we stand with those that we do life with. In our culture, we call this conversation with a, a boyfriend or girlfriend a DTR. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Define the relationship, right? And at some point, you've got to have that conversation when it comes to marriage. And here's what I'm kind of positing this morning. I'm wondering, how many of us need to have a DTR with some spiritual friends in our lives? Because here's, if, if I'm just honest and vulnerable this morning, Holly and I have walked in a life of, of other friends, and so often we assume that we have a greater need for relationship than the people that we're spending time with. And, and so we don't want to ask that question, hey, would you guys want to hang out more? Because the, the concern is that they might have all that they need. They may not have enough time or they may not be feeling what we're feeling, right? So it's a risky thing to do that. We don't do that in our relationships. How weird would that be to sit down with another guy, right? Guys out there and be like, um, just wondering if you wanted to be best friends, you know? Like, we don't do that in our culture. But what's funny is I've done that in two conversations in just the last month. It didn't quite sound like that. But I realized this need, and what I said was, I want you to know, I, I see that some of the values you have are the same values I have, and I, I've really hit it off, and I don't know, maybe you have enough friends on your own. And you know what he said to me? He said, yeah, I really only have a couple of friends in my life that are deep friends, and I would count you as one of those. And that seems like an awkward conversation across from a burrito, but I'm telling you, It'll change your life if you know that the need of the other person is the same as the need that you have. And so many of us, we fake as if we have enough friends. A lot of us are way too busy to think we could add more, right? But how many of us would love to have a relationship like Jonathan that we could know beyond a shadow of a doubt this person's going to be there, they've made covenant with us? This is so odd in our culture, but it might just work. 1 Samuel 20, we see the next level of the relationship with them. Another covenant that comes. This is 1 Samuel 20, verse 13. But if my father intends to harm you, Jonathan says, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. 
And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. See, Jonathan actually recommits himself to David after he's already made a covenant. And he says, not only am I committed to you, I'm committed to your entire household. I'm going to make sure that you know when danger comes. And David in return gives his life as well. He honors Saul, even though Saul is the one that he's going to replace. He, he has a chance to kill him every now and again. But his relationship with Jonathan and his commitment to the Lord keeps him uh, from doing things that he wouldn't have done otherwise. It's that relationship, it's that community, it's that covenant together that is something that David honors throughout his life. And I don't think it's an accident that the high point of David's relationship and honoring of God and being all that he should be aligns with this relationship with Jonathan that's so powerful in his life. But every friendship comes to an end at some point. And that happens in the life. In 1 Samuel 31, there's a battle, and Saul and Jonathan end up dying in this battle against the Philistines. And all of a sudden, David is at this low point because he's lamenting for uh, you know, Jonathan, even as he's about to become king. And you would think this would be the greatest moment of his life, but I want to read the words of lament that he shares as they commemorate the life of Jonathan and Saul. This is 2 Samuel uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? David has a lot of women in his life. We find out through the story. Not all of them end up as positive stories, but this relationship with Jonathan, it outweighs them all. You see this love that David has for Jonathan. He laments his death, and something in David shifts in this moment. When he loses this deep friendship, this covenant, all of a sudden he becomes isolated in a whole new way, and that comes to a new extreme later in the story, in one of those low moments in David's life. It's in 2 Samuel 11 that we read possibly the worst moment of David's life, that moment that moves away from community and back into isolation. This is 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. It's just like Peter said, isn't it? Those moments without relationships, Satan knows exactly when to attack. At the time when David should have been off at war on the battlefield with his men in the greatest community of his life, what he finds is he's back home at the time when kings go off to war. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he's isolated. And what happens? This isolation leads to sin. 
And that sin only continues to grow because in the scene that follows, Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, he brings him home off the battlefield, hoping that he'll sleep with his wife and think this new child is, is his. But Uriah is honorable enough to not do this to his men who are out on the field. And so David ends up putting him on the front lines and he ends up dying in a battle. You see how this works, don't you? And this is so true in our lives. We start in a place of isolation. And isolation leads us to the point of sin, doesn't it? It, it creates opportunity for it. Satan sees us separated from the herd. And so we, we move from isolation into sin. And then what does sin do? Sin further isolates us, doesn't it? It leads us into more secrets that we can't share with others. It leads us into protection mode. We see that in David's life. And what happens even after the child dies? His own son Absalom is trying to kill David. His own family. I mean, he... David never recovers the kind of relationship with anyone that he had with Jonathan. And when he's in isolation, it turns in such a bad place. This is a man after God's own heart, David. It's not that God doesn't love him. It's not that God's not going to continue to do great things with him. But what it shows is even the greatest men of God, whose hearts are devoted to God, in those moments of isolation, they're as weak as anyone can be, even the king of all of Israel. And isolation leads to sin. Sin leads to further isolation. It's this cycle that you just can't stop. It just gets worse and worse. And that's how addictions pop up, and that's how sins become impossible to, to, to grapple with, is we don't pull that into the light because we're isolated by sin that just pushes us into further isolation. This morning, uh, I've shared my story before about this whole idea. I've experienced this kind of isolation and, and, and walked back into community. But more powerfully, another in our church, Glenn Clark, was willing to share his testimony with us. And so I want you to watch this video and see that cycle of sin and isolation and then that defense of community. Let's watch this right now. My name is Glenn, and I wanted to share with you today regarding my challenges with sin and isolation in my life. Through Jesus Christ, I'm celebrating recovery over lust and pornography. In looking back at my history over this issue, I would have to say that isolation played a major role in keeping me in bondage. Genesis 2 verse 18 says, It is not good for man to be alone. And in my case, it was really not good for me to be alone. It was very destructive. In my isolation, I was convinced that no one would understand or accept me I was convinced that my sin would repel others away from me. I knew that I needed help, but didn't want to risk how others would relate to me. I was bound by a fear of rejection, and my isolation kept me defeated. Additionally, when I was alone, I could easily rationalize my destructive behavior. And as a result, I was in a constant cycle of temptation, and then sin, and then guilt, and then shame. It was a downward spiral that I could not get out of. It was through prayer that God helped me overcome and is continuing to do so. One of the ways he answered my prayer was to lead me to others. He led me to people that loved me just as I was. When I finally reached out to others for help and encouragement, things began to change in my life. I started developing relationships. I started to trust others. I started to reach out to people who could help me, who would love me just how I am, and would be able to offer their love and encouragement. God provided a safety net through relationships. We would meet together, we would talk on the phone, we would share our hearts, and as a result, I would find more encouragement and more healing that God is providing for me. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, 
Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. In looking back, the relationships that God has brought into my life have helped me both with my issues and in my ability to help others. It was a hopeless situation that God used to deliver me from my bondage. God used these relationships to help me become a better person, become stronger, and to, to continue to devote myself to Him. Thank you for letting me share. I'm grateful for stories like that and the willingness to share because there's a power in this, isn't it? And knowing other stories and knowing how we release the power of sin in our lives. Glenn has been a member of our Blue Crew, which is our volunteer team at Celebrate Recovery. And it was in that ministry that he found healing and he's helping others find healing as well. When I think back about my isolation, I want you to think about yours as well. Whatever those moments of isolation have been, whether that's been sin or that's been other things that have taken you there, I want you to think about how susceptible in those moments you've been to Satan's attacks, whether that's on your self-esteem and your sense of who you are, and you feel like there's no one you can share with. It is such an isolating feeling. And if there's any place that should be different, where you can share your stuff and be received and, and find healing from those things, the church has to be that place. I'm as convinced of that as ever. Because where else are you going to be able to share who you are without the risk of of judgment in the ways? And and some of you have done that. You've you've shared that in a church setting and you've received judgment in response. What I want to say is I'm sorry for those moments. Because this ought to be the place where we come and we step out of our isolation. We're able to be honest about what's going on and we're able to defeat Satan through the community that he's placed us in. Some of us right now are in one of those isolating moments. Next week, I want to invite you back because next week, God's really laid something on my heart over the last month or so through some conversations that I've had where people have experienced and expressed their isolation. And I've realized that a lot of us are living in different pockets of isolation. It's not just sin, it's other things in our lives that lead us to feel like church is the least safe place. Or is the least, this is the last place you would come to bring those things. And I want us to walk away from that. I want us to start on a journey where we find this to be the safest possible place where we can bring our stuff and we can be received and we can be walked through that through the grace of Jesus Christ. Do you want the same thing, church? That's what this is all about, isn't it, this journey? So I think, Glenn, this morning, and, and if maybe you're in one of those situations, you realize, yeah, it's, it's, it's a struggle in my life and I don't know where to go. A great place to start would be this coming sun, uh, Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Every week we have a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. And Glenn's a part of that ministry along with, with many others. I found healing through that ministry. And I, I think it could be a place, no matter what your struggle is, that, that you could find it. There are other groups that meet throughout the week. There's Hope Class that meets on Wednesday nights as well. There's uh, small groups that are a place that that can happen. If you're not in a connecting point group, we... We encourage you to do that. We're going to have more conversation today and this week in many of those groups about the sermon and how we make groups safer places to engage these kind of struggles. But God has called us to do more, and so it may be different for each one of us. Some of you have community. You've walked into the light. You've found relationships, and it's, it's changed you. You've made your declaration of dependence. But some of you need to do more of that. I talked earlier about that DTR conversation. I know some of you are like, there's no way I'm doing that. I think what keeps us from it is really, it's an insecurity about ourselves. It's the question of if I risk that, what might I find out on the other side? Not every relationship works out. Sometimes when I've had those conversations, it hasn't gone that well. And that's painful, isn't it? But if we're going to find the kind of community we're going to be able to walk with, it's going to be able to walk through the difficult and most difficult, the most difficult moments in life. It's going to happen because we risk and we say, I need more people in my circle. 
who've been through what I'm going through, who can be mentors for me, who can be peers that walk through the challenges of life. I want to challenge you this week. If you have a friend that you've never had that conversation with, have that conversation with them this week. Pray that God would lead you to the right words. And I'm, it's amazing if it goes well. If it doesn't go well, I don't know what to tell you. But when it goes well like it has for me over the last couple of weeks, how that's brought a bond that wasn't there beforehand. And all it is is shared understandings, right, of the need we all have and the desire we have to offer that to one another. Right now, I want to close with a, a prayer. Well, I want to invite you back next week to, to hear more about isolation and the community we're called into. I'm really excited about next week's message, but I know this may have touched you this morning, and, and I want to push you to take that next step, whatever it is, into relationship, out of isolation, into community. It can be the changing moment in your life. Let's pray as we close our time. God, we, we thank you so much for community. We thank you for your spirit that, that lives in your church and in your body. I thank you for the relationships in my life, God, that have allowed me a safe place to share the honest truth of who I am and what I'm struggling with. It has changed my life to have those relationships. God, there's a lot of us right now who need more like that. Some of us need to be that safe space for others to come to. And so, God, I pray this week we take the next step, whatever that is, whether that's the the brave step of coming and showing up to a ministry we've never showed up to before like CR, or whether that's the step of moving into a connecting point group, or whether that's the step of just defining a relationship that we know is a Uh, so meaningful to us and and just making sure that both parties see the importance of it. God, I pray you would guide those conversations and and bless them this week. God, we love you and we thank you for even your Holy Spirit that leads us into community, that you're a community in yourself with the Father, Son, and Spirit and that you, in your dance that you invite us into, God, you you bring us even a sense of comfort uh, there. But God, we need each other. We declare that dependence again today. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.